What does it mean when the Yellow Emperor mourns? And why should that matter to you? Does he lord it over his subjects and discusses medicine and needles because the exploitation of a healthy population yields more taxes? Or does he love and care for the people like a parent for their children? And is he heartbroken about their suffering? How do we read and translate a text like the Yellow Emperor's Inner Classic that was compiled 2,000 years ago, but references figures from what was even then a mythological past of many centuries earlier? What tools do three experienced translators turn to when we get stuck and our spidey sense tells us that we're just not quite getting it? That our finger is no longer pointing at the moon, but quite possibly at the sun? And how do we cultivate the spidey sense that alerts us that we may be misunderstanding a phrase or passage? A teaser? It involves a book called Beware of Chicken, thanks to Brenda Hood. The process and pitfalls through which we find meaning in classical texts is what we're discussing in today's episode of A Pebble in the Cosmic Pond, titled The Yellow Emperor's Broken Heart. I'm your host, Dr. Sabina Wilms, and I'm joined once again by Leo Locke, self-proclaimed purveyor of multiple perspectives, and Dr. Brenda Hood, our resident Taoist sage, among the seven fools of the bamboo grove that make up the core of our Pebble in the Cosmic Pond team. Before we get into the conversation, I'd like to remind you to sign up for my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com connect to get notified of new episodes and any other offerings. And please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you can. Also, check out the show notes if you want to learn more. Thank you, and enjoy another wonderful conversation that I'm so happy to share with you all here. If you feel inspired to learn even a bit of classical Chinese yourself after listening to our conversation, I offer a whole smorgasbord of options and information on my website, translatingchinesemedicine.com, from a completely free two-month-long introductory course to a monthly membership to my two-year-long intensive Triple Crown training program, which starts this September 14 with the Foundations course. Be there or be square. I only offer it once every two years, so check it out. And now let's get into the conversation. Thanks for listening. So today, I think I would like to invite us to, to look at translation again, but in the sense that we're going to try to reveal what goes behind the scenes, so to speak. Because Sabina and I have been working on translation projects for a couple of years now. I think the public only gets to see what she put out there in the final form in, in her books, in her translation, her final translation, but never gets to see what goes behind the scene, all the conversations that we have 
regarding a term, a word, a phrase, how we kind of argue with each other and try to convince each other of our point of views. So I thought it would be really fascinating to, to reveal that aspect of the process of translation that most people don't get to hear and see. And, and look at all the various tools and angles and perspective that we use to get closer to what we think is, you know, uh, the best translation possible. So what do you think, Sabina? I think it's awesome. I think, and, and the first thing that came to my mind is I tried to do a little bit of that in my book, Humming with Elephants. Mm. And I don't know if that came through at all. But um, so what I was thinking we should do at first is, since we got you and Brenda here, Leo, it, and maybe this is not going to work. Do you have, if we make each of us, us in like two minutes, explain where we go when we hit a dead end? And ah. maybe I can start just like really, like don't overthink it. Brenda, but where, like, for me, when I, and it happens all the time, I've got a passage right now in the Sun Miao Yangqing um, chapter, and what I've actually done is just, like, dropped it and done a podcast. So I've been hung up on this weird passage where, in order to get the perfect um, pine sap, you have to go climb this mountain and go this many paces in this direction, and then you have the shady side, and there's all these old trees, these special pine trees. And there's clearly a geographical thing going on, but I'm not sure if it's talking about a cave, a hole in the tree, or if it's a grove of trees, or it's just... It, it, I'm I'm kind of stuck. So where do I go with that? And for me, the first thing I do is I walk away from it and I try and sleep on it. Um, I look up each character on Pleco in the in the English dictionary. That's the easiest thing. Is the um, what is this called? The SCM the the dictionary, the Paul Kroll Dictionary, which is a paid add-on in Pleco. Then I have uh, the Hanyu Datsu, and I have a couple of Chinese dictionaries. There is zdic.net, zdic.net. So I look it up there. Then I put the phrases into the, um, what is it, the the Han Ripo, that Japanese yeah. repository of Chinese literature, which is not great for pre-Tang texts, I have found. It's yes. great for later, like Song and later texts, but for earlier texts, it's not... I think I also think it's better for, for religious literature, maybe. So I find that kind of limited. It's great for the Song Dynasty work that I do, but for earlier texts... It's not great. So I, I put, I Google, actually, I put things in Google. I just Google phrases and see what comes up. And a lot of times in Sun Tzu um, there are a lot of typos. So there are a lot of quotations from other texts. So I actually realize, oh, this is from some obscure Taoist text. And then I go to the Taoist text and it uses slightly different characters. And all of a sudden it makes sense. And if I still don't, 
get anywhere. Um, I write to Leo. <laughs> so that's my process, I think, in a nutshell. And of okay. course, I look at different editions of the of the text that I'm working with. And I look at, I mean, if there are translations, if I'm looking at the Suwen, I, I look at all the different editions I have. And then I, I look at online editions. I look at um, written editions, like, like scanned PDFs. And that's where C-text C is really helpful. And for Sun Tzu to a certain extent, that works as well. Um is that pretty comprehensive, Leo? What do you do? Yeah, I think I do a similar process. And uh, so I wouldn't say too much because I want to reveal that in the, our ensuing conversation as we go through Ling Shu Wan. And then in each of our discussion, we'll kind of reveal that the different perspective and tools and processes. I think that would be fun. I would like to hear what Brenda does, you know, yep. just briefly, and could be very yeah, different. Yeah, see, I'm a completely different individual in how I approach this kind of stuff. First of all, I'm not intending my stuff to be particularly scholarly. That's just not the way my brain works. I like the scholarly stuff. I love to read all of that kind of stuff. You know, somebody else's opinion on this amazing information, but... Sometimes that drives me crazy because I look at somebody's interpretation or translation of something and I just go, mm, no, that, that doesn't work for me, you know, and that's very personal. And so Sabina just gave the example of trying to translate this passage from Sun Tzu Miao and, you know, going up the mountain and blah, blah, and wandering off and going in a certain direction. And for her, it's really crucial to make sure that the exact understanding of the characters is really clear to her readers, because that's what she's doing. She's translating. But as she's talking about, well, you know, he's going up the mountain, and so Chinese philosophy, the whole Bagua, the, the trigram gun, or, you know, and so how does that go into it? And is that, you know, kind of what the Taoist is thinking? And then all of a sudden you go in a certain direction, and so what direction is this person going? And is that particular aspect meaningful? Like, does he go left? Does he go right? I mean, east or west or, you know, and that has implications as well. I mean, if he's going to the west, then all of a sudden, you know, maybe you're looking at pine trees that are growing in some area that is more associated with metal, you know, and so there's this combination uh -huh. of the pine tree, which um, in Taoism, the pine is uh, liver. As far as trees are concerned, there are five trees in Taoism, and so all of a sudden you've got liver and metal, and so maybe it's that combination of the qualities of liver and metal. And in the human body, liver, of course, is said to go up on the left and metal down on the right, you know, and so maybe it has something to do with that energetic cycling in the body, rather than the exact details of where these pines are. And as you know, in Chinese medicine, and especially in Chinese medicine texts, maybe it's both. 
You know, mm-hmm. you can't separate them out as clearly as you would in English because so much of Chinese yeah. medicine really is about metaphor. Yeah. And when you translate stuff like that, my mind is just not wedded to the itty-bitty details of what this character <laughs> actually means. Which well, is, lucky of course, why you, Brenda. Well, no, I'm really lucky. You're right. I am because then I go and I read Sabina's stuff. <laughs> you know? And, and you I mean, get to think that, about the East and the West and the metal and the pine versus the cedar. And oh, lucky you. <laughs> well, that's just the way that, that I was thinking, you know? I mean, yes. I uh, have an eclectic reading list. <laughs> glimpse into my personal private life there's a genre of books which is very silly and i'm really enjoying it called uh ciencia and uh, you know the celestial warriors or celestial <laughs> and anyways it's just it is the silliest thing and i love it may i may i know exactly what you're reading it's that- the, the book is called beware of chicken too but what's the Chinese? The no, this is like it's written by a Western guy. I think he's Canadian. Oh, because he talks about a bunch of Canadian stuff, and it mixes this a lot of classical Chinese stuff, like stuff from classical history, different aspects of cultivation, um, martial arts, and then combines it into this really funny book. At and it, and at any rate, you know, at the moment he's not consciously, but he's kind of on his way to collecting spiritual animals, which all correspond to the zodiac, the Chinese zodiac. And I was thinking about it because uh, in the chapter that I was listening to today, they've come across a snake and a rabbit. And I was just thinking about the heavenly stems and earthly branches and how they relate to the channels in the body. And when you read the inner canon, in the inner canon, it talks about how the, you know, the channels that we use are related to, um, you know, the, the organ element so liver is related to wood, kidneys related to water, blah, 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 blah. But there's this whole other thing about the earthly branches. And the earthly branches and the Chinese zodiac, you know, basically it's just this line in the table or that line in the table or whatever. And I was just thinking about the whole idea. Well, if you talk about the earthly branches and their relation to the channels, which is not found anywhere in any of the classic writings, but it's still there in the culture and philosophy, then all of a sudden, what you begin to see is you begin to see, of course, the animals are also associated with the elements But they're not the same as the elements of the organs. They're the same as the elements that are potentially associated with each of the channels. And so we talk about the gallbladder channel. And gallbladder is water channel. And then after gallbladder, 
then what channel do we have? Then we merge on into liver. And what kind of a channel is liver according to the earthly branches? All of a sudden we're morphing from water into wood, which then matches both, it matches the, uh, the organ itself. And then after that, so when you get all the way to rabbit, rabbit's fire which in this book makes sense because there's a whole, anyways, I won't explain the whole book to you. But I mean, I read stuff like this or I listen to it and all of a sudden it makes me think in different ways and these different connections. And that's completely different from what you guys are doing. But I'm really trying to figure out this, this why are there, where is the disparity between talking about the yin organs and their relation to the heavenly stems, and the channels, and their relation to the earthly branches, and what does that really mean? My tentative conclusion to this, I have no textual evidence for it, is that, you know, the organs, the the yin organs are connected to heaven, so of course it makes sense that they're connected to the heavenly stems, and then the channels of the body are our ability to be in this world because they act as this compensatory mechanism where, you know, they talk about Taiyang is related to cold. Well, what is the mechanism of Taiyang? The mechanism of Taiyang is kind of twofold. First of all, it's on the exterior of the body, but it is that which enables us to defend ourselves against cold. You know, and it's combined of the bladder channel and the small intestine channel, one of which is a water channel and cold in nature, and the other one is a fire channel, and it is hot in nature. And so you have this combination, and somehow this tayang, when you go to a higher level of understanding, all of a sudden it's responsible for our ability to adapt to cold. And the the comparative is all about the 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 Shaoyin channels. Um, they are all about heat, and so when those get weak, your ability to compensate inside this bubble of who you are lessens. And so, I get insights from all kinds of weird places, mostly because I listen to weird. Um, novels about, <laughs> you know, spiritual chickens that, you know, are cultivators and go off and slay demons. And anyways, it's, it's an amusing book for me. Um, and it really helps if you understand Chinese That's culture. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I also go to Google. And I also go and, you know, have all of these dictionaries, and I do look up the words. It's not like I completely like just making this all up or whatever. And it's not like I don't have a background in Taoist philosophy or, or, you know, Chinese medicine or all these things. But the way that I think about things and how that comes together for me is not completely wedded to words. And so it's really helpful for me to talk to people, especially people who are more knowledgeable about the actual textual translation, to see what they say about my wild ideas about this, that, or the other meaning. 
but I also go and I check out online usually, you know, somebody else's interpretations. The modern ones kind of drive me crazy because the modern translations or interpretations of especially things like the inner canon, you can see how there's a lot of modern thinking in these Mm -hmm. interpretations and translations. But that doesn't mean they're completely useless. It just means that, well, maybe not. You know, maybe I need to look in other places and maybe I need to, you know, go off and do a little bit of Qigong or Tai Chi or something like that. Because doing that for me can be very helpful. I mean, you just put it aside and then all of a sudden you begin to focus on that which connects you to higher principles. And I find that this can be very helpful for me, which is, you know, perhaps a really sloppy way of translating, but I'm not intending this to be for, you know. I think, Brenda, everything you just said, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Leo, but what I loved is Brenda was not part of our conversation about truth and how you how you go about finding truth. I, and if I remember correctly, part of what we talked about is there is a truth, there's an intellectual and a rational and a scientific truth which you approach through language and rational thought. And then there's a whole other dimension of insight into the world, into language, into characters, into into illness and healing, into everything, which is beyond language and that's yes. that you gain through self-cultivation and i think brenda that's that's what you are giving as a corrective to my academic rational intellectual approach to translation you're like wait a minute there's a whole other dimension to to kind of and maybe it's not the goal is not translating these texts but it's reading the literature. That's what I've come to, that maybe my job it, when I write these books is translation, but ultimately that's impossible. And reading them is actually a better goal. But we need people like you, Sabina. We need people like Leo who can really knuckle down into the technical translation of these texts because they hold clues as to where to look. But they're you know, still just that, finger pointing at the moon. They may so, be every, so, everything is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what we have to do is figure out how to translate and how to not translate, but how to transmit this information mm-hmm. yes. to ourselves yeah. and to the next generation. And that involves individuals like you and Leo who are really hardcore scholars. And maybe individuals like myself who are a little bit more loosey-goosey and a little bit more abstract thinking in how we look at this stuff. Because if we tie ourselves only to the actual translations, we're going to lose this medicine. Yeah. Yeah. And I just have to say, Brenda, Leo and I are not hardcore scholars. We may be compared to practitioners, but compared to people like Elisabeth Xu and Paul Unschuld and all these people, what I do is way out there. For them, I put so much of my heart and I go way out of the comfort zone of a traditional academic. 
<laughs> yeah. And For them, I'm say, like a crazy person out there. And I would say that, again, these two seemingly different approaches uh, does not need to be mutual or do not need to be mutually exclusive. They can be mutually supportive and inform each other. And that's why I think we should start looking at the, the actual translations because I think in the process of discussing actual phrases, we can see how all these different elements come into play. I think for some phrases in some contexts, we need maybe 80% of textual and 20% of interpretive. But in some, actually, we would need the the interpretive mm-hmm. and felt sense to come in first as the leading in line of inquiry, and then we go search out for the textual evidence. So the process is not set. The process is not static, and the process is not formulaic. It, the context demands different mixtures and different um, sequences. What comes first? How much? It's almost like composing an herbal medicine. Right, and then I want to stop there because this is sound. This all sounds very abstract to our audience. If we go into the exact example, it will become quite clear what we're talking about. Okay. Awesome. All right, let's start. Leech okay, one. okay, Leo, you're itching. <laughs> okay, so Get in you there. you have uh, some strong reactions and opinion about this phrase, right? In the opening sentence of Ling Shu One, right? It, we have. You know, the, the AL emperor talking about, you know, how he collect taxes from the people. And then he felt really upset or I, which is like really, really sad about something. Tell, tell us more, Sabina, what have you have heard so far? Okay. And I'll try not to make it too nerdy. So the first thing that the Yellow Emperor says in Ling Shu 1, which is huge. We're talking about the entire divine pivot, this text. Fir- very first line is the Emperor says, Yu zi wan min. I, child, the 10,000 things. And anybody who knows classical Chinese grammar knows that child, this is the same character, child, um, seed, it's a very basic, the, the character is really, really simple. In this case, it has to be a verb because mm-hmm. I is the subject and the myriad people, the 10,000 people is the object. It's a subject, yes. verb, object sentence. Like there's no question. What does it mean that I child, for the yellow emperor to say I child the 10,000 People. We have to look at political theory. So first we have to look at the character, the range of meanings of the character. Then we have to look at the context that the text was written in. It's a medical text, but the Yellow Emperor is an emperor. It was compiled in the Han Dynasty, but it was most likely based on earlier literature. Does it reflect the politics of the Han Dynasty? The authors or the compilers of this text, they expressed an idea about who the Yellow Emperor was and his function in relation to the people. 
are we talking about a Bronze Age Yellow Emperor? Are we talking about a Zhou Dynasty concept of? Are we talking about a mythological, a a divine figure, or are we talking about somebody who functions like the emperor in the Han Dynasty, which was very much influenced by the ideal, depending on which Han emperor it was. Um, by the Qin Dynasty emperor, where you have a central figure that is maximizing using the people for the benefit of the government and exploiting the labor of the people in a civil war type situation that was all survival of the fittest and whatever is is you know the legalist idea of whatever is the most efficacious way to benefit the government to make the government strong is 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 the ideal. So are we talking about the Confucian Golden Age? Are we talking about Lao Tzu's idea that's sort of anarchist where there are these sages, but they're so wise and they're so powerful in their duh, in their in their virtue power that they act by non-action. What does it mean for the emperor to child the 10,000 people? I have um, seen this line translated in a way that really upset me, um, mm. where it was interpreted from a modern Western, I believe, a, and I've thought a lot about hierarchy so, on authority and dominance. And So what would be an example of that that upsets you? So the emperor treats the myriad people like his children. What does that mean? My relationship with my child is very different from the ideal relationship that my parents were raised of thinking as parents. My parents were raised in a Nazi environment where they learned, the first thing they learned is you let the baby cry. You don't pick up the baby because you are creating citizens, obedient citizens that do not get their needs met. Whereas my, I was what like the fancy is like the attachment parenting, whatever. I'm like, I'm picking my baby up. It's a newborn baby. I could not let my baby cry. And my baby got fed whenever she needed to. Um, power over, like the role of parents is something I've really, so this is totally out of your, <laughs> we're going way out of your intention of just working on the text here. But, you know, what did it mean in traditional Chinese we always call it a hierarchical culture. What did it? What what do these social relations mean for Confucius? We tend to think of Confucianism as this stifling, negative, um, hierarchical, conservative system that is all about imposing power over and organizing relationship. But is that really accurate, or are we reading modern Western? or modern global ideas about domination into a culture from 2,000 years ago, where maybe a parent-child, an emperor-minister, an older brother-younger relationship was very different. And is there a, 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 a way in which we can look at an older sibling-younger sibling, or a husband-wife relationship in a very different, can we Look at hierarchy in a different way. I have no idea. How do we construct what what this character to treat somebody as a child means? 
So I read a translation where it meant the emperor lorded it over the myriad people. And this is by no. a famous translator. This is by somebody who is one of the most, he shall remain, they shall remain unnamed, one of the most prestigious current teachers of the classics, who claims to be a translator and fluent in classical Chinese. And I happened to see this translation that they shared with their students in PowerPoints. And it said, I lorded over the myriad people. And then he goes on, I nourished the hundred surnames and I receive their, their taxes. And then the next line is, I grieve their bouquet. They're not giving it. Like literally gay, you look at gay, modern character. I, I'm upset that they're not giving me their taxes. And um, that is so offensive to me when I think about the Yellow Emperor as this mythological culture hero. And the, the, the contributions of the Yellow, it, like I lorded over the people is such an awful way of reading that first line when to me it's like, I treat the people like my children. That means I love them. I care for them. I feel responsible for their welfare in this absolutely 100%. I give the shirt of my back, obviously, like any East Asian parent, right? You give everything to your child. You you mortgage your house. You're, you 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 sell your house and live on the street to make your children happy. So to lord it over the children, it, it, over the people, is is really offensive. And then this other character, Bouquet. Um, wait, where was it? I I dug dug into it, and it's here pronounced "ji," and it means to be well stocked. So this yeah. character actually has a number of different definitions and pronunciations. So, I, I'm so curious about how did you come across that there is a different pronunciation for the word gay in modern Mandarin. Was, did that come from a dictionary? How did you come across this piece of information? I mean, this, this was a few years ago when I tried, I mean, this was probably 10 or 15 years ago when I first um, put together this draft translation. And I'm sure when I read that line, I said, I mourn or I am saddened by their not Doing something, and then that's the character. I'm yeah. sure I looked at the Hanyu Datsudian, and I looked at uh -huh. Zidik, and I'm sure okay. it was in there. I mean, that's okay. that's my first. So, without, so the reason I'm really honing on that yeah. particular very specific piece of information is because that was exactly what my teacher taught me in 1988. When I was a teenager, we had to go to classical Chinese after school. And of all the things that she taught us, this is the piece that I remembered the most. Because Madame Pond says, everybody, please remember, when you see these two uh, words, in classical Chinese, you have to remember, it cannot be pronounced as is because it has a very specific meaning in classical Chinese. It means... Somebody cannot fend for themselves. They don't have enough to feed their own family. That is the meaning of 不急 in classical Chinese. 35 years later, 
I remember it. So that is one way of knowing how to interpret thing is heritage. My teacher taught me this, and her teacher taught her that. Right. So through the heritage, through the transmission throughout the centuries and millennia, that's how we remember it. 不给 as 不及 meaning very specifically, people cannot fend for themselves. Now, yeah. So as a more scholarly person now, with more resources at my disposal, I take that as a wonderful heritage, inherited transmission. But I also want to verify it. Did Madame Palm taught me the right thing, right? So what I went. Was since we have C text, I went and searched for how buji is being used in the old days, right? And that's why the first phrase that、uh, or the first textual evidence I sent to you guys is in Mengzi. Everybody know Mencius Mengzi when he was talking with、uh, Liang Huiwang, right? And he says, "What is the the role of the emperor, the Wang?" Right or the the king, he says one of the roles of the emperor is to survey the nation, to go out into the field and talk to the people and see what they're doing. And what do we have? We have, 春醒耕而补不足，秋醒耕练而足不及 So in this parallel text, we see that they say, oh, in the springtime you have to go survey when people are plowing and seeding. If there's putzu, if there's not something that's not enough, maybe they don't have enough plows, maybe don't they don't have enough what buffaloes, then you provide them, you pu, right? And then when it comes to the、uh, harvest time during the fall, you have to go out there and listen to the people, and when there is not enough harvest, then what do you do? You zu puji, you help those who cannot. Fend for themselves, who do not have enough harvest, to one pay for the taxes, second, uh, feed their family through the winter, and spring. That's how、mm. we know. If you look at the textual evidence, it is there. Buke does not mean, or buji does not mean the people are not paying their taxes. It means the people don't have enough to eat. Therefore, in Ling Shu One, Huang Di's reaction was, "I, I is not just feeling sad. I is very, very sad, heartbroken. That's what I means in classical Chinese. He's heartbroken that even though he's collecting taxes, but before he can collect the taxes, the people are starving. They don't have enough for themselves. So both from the textual evidence." And your understanding of how the sage king should work, we can derive at the same spot, which is buji. Absolutely cannot mean that they don't pay their taxes, right? And then, if we're familiar with the classical Chinese, you will know that there is no evidence or instances where buke means to to.、Uh, Some、uh, to submit their taxes. Sui is jiao. We use the verb jiao if it is from the people, right? Or na na sui jiao sui. In Chinese, 
language from the beginning till today, no one would say use the verb gay on taxes. This, this again, yes. this is from yes. the heritage. It's like this doesn't make sense. We never use gay in association with submitting taxes or paying taxes. This is not Chinese. So, so that's the you know from the initial instinctual reaction as a heritage speaker or native speaker to the transmitted grammar that we have or you know semantics that we have all through looking at the all the textual evidence, it all points to the fact that this cannot be translated that way. Mm. So that's how I approach it. Uh, and all the reactions I have by listening to uh, translating as such, right? So there's my process. Okay, Brent. I just, I just want to make a comment on something you talked a little bit about a little bit earlier. The idea about this translation of the word or verb in this case, and how you know you treat the the populace's children and hierarchical power and stuff like that. But in the context of the inner canon, it makes no sense to translate it as having this negativity associated with it. I mean, in chapter one of the Su Wen, basically it describes how the Yellow Emperor is basically um, gifted by the heavens and he has all these powers and gifts. And so there's this really strong connection to heaven, which is all about benevolence. Yes. yes. You know, and so mm-hmm. if you're going to, in English, think about the Yellow Emperor, it cannot be that he's going to lord it over in the English sense of the term. It makes no sense at all. Yeah. I mean, he has to have this benevolent heart because he's all about you know, what's going on with the others. I mean, here he is, he's helping to write this text in order to benefit the health of, of those who who come after him or who, who he has a certain amount of power over. But he's the idea that there is some sort of taking advantage of people and that very powerful, I'm going to take whatever I want from these people makes absolutely no sense given the cultural context and even what the the text in the Neijing says itself. Yeah, I agree. And, and because there's another uh, yeah. sort of contradiction there is because if you are taking, like if, if the Yellow Emperor is framed or phrased as uh, the somebody who lords over the people and take advantage of people, then from whence came the the deep sorrow? If when he cannot collect the taxes, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, a b- benevolent well, yeah, king. Yeah, because he's he's not like uh, the Chin Emperor was really really sad because he couldn't build his golden swimming pool. Yeah, but I... I mean, I have me- millionaire neighbors down here by the beach, and somebody just whined to me yesterday about having to rebuild his seawall for I half understand. a million dollars. And he was but really upset. And I just looked at him. Upset is not the same as I. <laughs> upset is yeah. incorrect translation of I. Yeah. I means you are in deep sorrow, out of sympathy. Yeah, that's true. And severance of a loving bond. That's how... That, yeah, that's Chinese. Yeah, yeah. 
Translating as upset is not Chinese. It does not conform to how Chinese languages was and Chinese languages now. We have never, ever mean I as upset. Yeah. I is deep sorrow. I is heartbroken. Right. So, so there we have it. Uh, so I agree with Brenda that because you have to tune into the vibe of the passage, right? You through, look at the inner classics or in the canon in Neijing, it's always the yellow emperor is always this benevolent person who, that is why he, he wanted to talk about all this because he feels so, so sorrowful and sympathetic and empathetic of the, uh, the suffering of the people. That's why he has this conversation. So that's why it is recorded. That is why, right? So, so yeah. that it can be transmitted. That's the whole vibe of the passage. So, so yeah. So I would think, yeah. I agree with you. It should be interpreted as such. Okay. Yeah, and can you see why I was so upset when I read that other version? Because I deeply love and treasure classical Chinese literature. And I see these, I see people judging ancient China based on a projection of modern, of people. And, and we all do this. Like, you know, I just started out going into a tirade about my own parenting practices. So I'm reading my love of my daughter into the way I translate my interpretation of what it means to child. So mm -hmm. as a Western translator, I'm, I mean, I, I am also trained as an anthropologist. So maybe I'm a little more conscious than the average person to the fact that we're all wearing rose-colored glasses. One of the I things I think you need to consider, too, is that the Yellow Emperor's inner canon was written down in the Han Dynasty, but it's very likely from the sophistication of the text that this is very old information and goes way back, even further than that. And so if that's the case, then you have to kind of think about, well, you know, are we talking about individuals who might have been in clan situations rather than these rigid, formal, governmental situations. And yeah. if that's the case, if you look at, for example, modern-day tribes, peoples who still live in clans, their treatment of their children mm -hmm. is as precious jewels that must be fostered and taken care of and these children are often given quite a bit of treatment, whereas once you get into a more formalized society, you begin to see a little bit more authoritarian behavior towards kids. And this is just nothing mm. but speculation on my part. But it it feels right to think that the Yellow Emperor would think of the, you know, the, the peoples over which he has a certain authority to be like children, but loved children, children for whom you really want to do your best to ensure that they grow up in a healthy 
way and they can go out and and be self-sufficient and do what they need to do as opposed to you know taking mm. everything that they have and you know then lamenting oh well you know i took all these taxes and therefore the you know the the people don't have enough to eat and oh i'm so sad about that i mean that makes no sense at all yeah. to translate it in that fashion whatsoever Mm-hmm. And know, also, I mean, the tra- translating the Neijing is really slippery because we really, at the end of the day, do not know when this information what began its transmission, because the Han Dynasty is just a milestone in the transmission of the information. It's when this stuff yeah. shifted from an oral tradition into a written tradition. Mm-hmm. And also, there's another aspect as well, which is confusing what history says and what the passage intends. Because I think for some translators, mm. they maybe they are familiar with the history of China and ancient history of China. They did see that, like for example, the Qin Emperor or these lords, or kings, did really lord over their people. And really see their people as commodities, as slaves, as provider uh, of resources for military expansion. That is a historical fact, mm-hmm. right? There are certain kings and mm-hmm. uh, emperors which we who whom really act as if they think like that. So, but that has nothing to do with the. How the authors of the Neijing wants to fashion Yellow Emperor, the Yellow Emperor, because we have to look at the Yellow Emperor as written in the Neijing, not as a historical commentary by later people. Does that make sense? It's like if I'm composing、yeah. a novel or a book, you have to define my main character as how I write them. Not as how you think it should yes. be. Yes. Right. So I do not argue against. Yes, there are certain kings and emperors and rulers in ancient China who really lord over people. That's a historical fact. That is a historical fact. But that has nothing to do with how the Neijing. Does it because the Neijing authors wants to portray and successfully so to portray the Yellow Emperor as a figure that's benevolent that cares about his people. That's very clear in all the passages, right? So to not read that thing in context, I think is the first、um, misstep of a translator. To not read things in the context of the composition. Of that piece of literature, and let the other known facts come in to interfere. Right, that's a. So I think that's probably what happened a little bit there. Well, anyhow, that's.、Uh, shall we move on to the next? Complicated word, <laughs> and and you know I'm just putting in.、Um, I just for kicks I just put the characters for Buji. I put those、uh-huh. two characters into Pleco just、uh-huh. to see, and、um, just to see where my students would end up if they、yeah. were looking at this as a blank slate. 
they've learned sure. a little bit about the Yellow Emperor. So I don't think they would make that mistake. I think they would know that the Yellow Emperor is a benevolent figure, exactly mm-hmm. like like Brenda said, because yes. that's part of what they would have learned. And then for Pucci, um, there is no um, definition for that compound in the Kroll Dictionary, but there is yes. the Grand Ritchie, which basically said, if I if I translated, it says insufficient. Yes. Putu. Resources, lives, capital, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And then, yeah. And then the same thing that they're, the Hanyu Datsudien, yeah, that they just don't have enough. Um, and mm-hmm. then if I look up, let me just look up gay. Um, actually, in classical Chinese, it the, the gay doesn't even show up. So if you looked, okay, this is a good little lesson. If you if you're kind of a beginner in this, if you look the character up by the pronunciation gay, you will not get a classical definition. This is really important. So the dictionary, if you're using Pleco and you're not smart about it, you will get the modern definitions which are completely misleading, the, the classical, Paul Kroll's, the only classical English dictionary, if you don't know French, the only, and you don't know modern Chinese, you're not ready for reading modern, reading Chinese Chinese dictionaries, the only definitions you get are modern definitions, modern Chinese, that say gay. But if you look it up under the character, as opposed to under the pinyin pronunciation, what pops up is ji, as the pronunciation mm-hmm. of the character. And it says, mm-hmm. well-supplied, well-provided. And then the second one, take care of, look after. So yeah. that's the art of even looking up a character by a pronunciation that is only modern. You get completely misled, which is such an easy mistake yeah. to make. Which is people. very important. Because as people yeah. starting out, I see that I don't think it's completely avoidable. It is just a pro. Is it is a transi- transition where teachers would say, "Oh, just look up all the possible definitions of this character and see one which one fits the best." It's a common advice that beginning uh, teachers gave to beginning students, which I think is a really legitimate and workable uh, approach for beginners. But as we be- graduate from the beginning stage of translation into the intermediate students, we have to know that different meanings and semantics of a word appear in diff- has a historical layer to it. Certain meanings don't come into the picture until Ming Dynasty. Some, yeah. pe- some meanings don't come into the picture until Song Dynasty. So if we're trying to translate a Han Dynasty text with Song meaning or Qing Dynasty meaning, then we're completely lost. Just like here, Bu Gei, the Gei, a giving in the modern context, did not exist back yeah. in Han Dynasty, right? It's more of the Ji, the meaning of the Ji, not sufficient, not being taken care of. Yeah. Which, which, if you ask a modern Chinese native speaker, most of them will not know it. That's another danger of, not danger, but the sad, you know, a, 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 what do you call it, a pitfall, yes. a trap of 
asking a, a modern native speakers about certain meanings of certain words. We have to be very, very careful. Just like if I think about it, if I ask my sister or my brother or my relatives about this word, most of them would not know it. They would stick to the modern interpretation of give. Just give. Anybody give. Giving in any relationship is give. Okay? But that's not how the word was used back 2,000 years ago. So asking a native speaker about these things can be tricky unless they are professionally trained or they have a strong interest in classical Chinese. They're not reliable sources either. Which is something that I have struggled with my entire professional life, that I have a certain way of reading texts and I have a certain training in classical Chinese and, a, and, and people are like, well, never mind. Yeah, it's yeah. it's. It, thank you because, for thank you for bringing that up. Because a lot of times, beginners in Chinese uh, culture languages make that mistake. They think that uh, native speakers would know more. Yes, in certain contexts, yes. But in a lot of times, if they have not been reading classical texts or not trained in it, they don't have the capacity to correctly interpret a lot of things. They will make it up, <laughs> you know, and and that applies even to scholars of Ming Dynasty and Song Dynasty as well, because they have never seen like we have now Jia Guwen, the Oracle Bones script. They had never seen the excavated text, so they right, don't know. They didn't know. They have to make things up. So I think you know. In that sense, we can give people leeways of making things up because that, that is historically, that's the way it is. We do our best. We all do. Yeah? We all do. We're we do looking for meaning. And I think that was the whole thing. That That's your whole theme for our conversation today is how do we find meaning? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, how do you find meaning is super important. And my way of looking at kind of a bigger fuzzier picture gives meaning to me and really helps me. And one of the things that I always say to myself, well, you know, there's lots of really smart people out there, people smarter than I am. And I can learn from lots and lots of people. But at the end of the day, people say lots of things. And you have to decide for yourself if what they're saying makes any sense at all. And if it fits within the context of how you understand. But you also have to be very willing to let go of a meaning that you favored. It's like, yeah, this has actually got to be the real meaning. Because if you hold on to what you think is the real meaning with, you know, real tenacity, sometimes what that means is that you're going to lose the actual meaning because. You know, it's holding on to the boat after the boat has taken you across the river. Mm. You know, you don't need the boat. You don't need to carry that boat once you've gotten to the other side of the river. Here, once you've gotten the actual meaning. And so if you hold on to it in that way, you're just burdening yourself. Can you allow that boat to, to go and then you can carry on on your way. Maybe you might need another boat at some time, but you don't need that same boat. And maybe you'll need something different when you go a little further along that path of finding 
what this really means, which at the end of the day almost always turns out to be really ineffable. You know, the really high level meanings go beyond words. And even words can bring you only to a certain point. And once you get to that point, then you have to figure out, well, what are they really talking about? What are the perceptions that these words are trying to point us to? Because language is all about the transmission of perception. Yes, yes. I think that will be a really good lead into our next discussion. Because that is like the most perfect, Brenda. You just frame it so perfectly for the approach we're going to apply upon the next discussion we're going to talk about. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, remember to subscribe to my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com connect to get notified of future episodes and other offerings. Please rate, review, and share our podcast with your friends and colleagues and join the conversation on our Pebble in a Cosmic Pond Facebook group. If we have now inspired you to learn classical Chinese, check out my offerings, including a two-month-long absolutely free introduction course over at translatingchinesemedicine.com and consider applying to join the new Triple Crown cohort for my classical Chinese intensive that starts once every two years this September 14th with the Foundations course. Or do you want to to now listen to the second half of this conversation in which we got even more nerdy and much more clinically specific on the meaning of suspended yang and the role of balance beams, jade tubes, and a forgetting mindset on needling techniques as described in the middle of Ling Shu chapter one? That podcast and more is offered in my Imperial Tutor mentorship, which you can sign up for at happygoatproductions.com slash imperialtutor. And last but definitely not least, go out there and spread some positive vibrations between heaven and earth.